Um, how many of you guys like to play games on your phone? Okay, so you guys have phone games. I don't even know what those are anymore. I remember Angry Birds and Candy Crush. We had people playing those like in church all the time. Like, so I don't know what that says about our church service. So there's like lots of games out there. All right, so you can put your hands down. Okay, so now I want you to raise your hand if this applies to you. Okay, how many of you like to play the waiting game? No, no hands went up on that one? No one likes to play the waiting game. And by the way, the waiting game, who came up with that dumb term anyway? I feel like it's like Tom Sawyer trying to trick his friends to paint the white fence like it's like some game, like the waiting game. I found this app on my phone, and it's called The Waiting Game. And you might want to download this because it's not what you do at the DMV to like pass the time. It's actually a waiting game. And this is good for all levels of gamers, okay? So what you do is you press the button, and you hold it down. And you see how long you can go. So I made it to like 20 seconds yesterday. So that's my record, and I couldn't do it anymore, you know? So that's... That's the gist of the waiting game. No one likes to play the waiting game. This app has like four downloads, you know, so we can, that's <laughs> what you get for a free uh, waiting game app. So no, no one likes to play the waiting game. A couple stats on waiting. This is totally going to depress you, by the way. Um, Americans spend 37 billion, billion hours each year waiting in line. 37 billion hours. So Per person, that amounts to about six months out of your life. So six months out of your life, you're going to be waiting in lines. Um, every year, the average American spends 32 minutes whenever they visit the doctor. Some of you guys go to the doctor and would love to spend 32 minutes. <laughs> like, that would be a, a gift to you. Um, 28 minutes in security lines whenever they travel. 21 minutes waiting for a significant other to get ready to go out. By the way, if you're one of those people who takes a long time to go out, you're a lady. No, I, I mean, I, sh I, should I should pronunciate this a little bit better. You are a lady, L-A-T-I-E. You're a lady. This is not just ladies who are ladies. A lot of men are ladies. And by the way, every married couple seems to have one of these. There's not two ladies and there's not two early people. It's always like one lady and one non-lady. I don't know why that is, but it's about half of the population. Are you a lady? I see some people nudging their spouse. Uh, 13 hours annually waiting on hold for customer service. Oh, I think I've spent that this year easily. And 50 hours a year waiting in traffic. We all love waiting in traffic, don't we? And so again, this, this period of, of Christmas and between New Year's, it's kind of analogous, analogous to uh, these waiting periods that we have in life where it's just like, what do you do when you're just kind of stuck and you're kind of waiting for answers. You're waiting for something to change. You're waiting for something good to happen. Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess. And a wild guess is that everyone, every single person in this room has the quote unquote, the big thing, the big thing in their life. And this is defined by a problem, an obstacle, um, facing some ad kind of adversity. And it's something in your life that's just not going perfect. Am I describing you? I probably am because this is something that's common for, for most of us. And maybe it's the only reason you're in church today. Maybe the only reason you came to church today is just like you're so desperate to hear an answer uh, from God in particular about the situation that you're, that you're facing, the adverse circumstances that you're facing, the problem, the obstacle. And maybe you're thinking, man, if I only just had one of those you know, make that plural, obstacles, problems, adversities, things like that. And so all of us have 
something in our life that's not going so well, that's not perfect, that's not ideal, and we're waiting on God for some kind of answer. I follow this, um, this person on Instagram, and um, she's a prominent Christian author and speaker, and so she's got like, you know, tens of thousands of followers, and just last week she said, hey, I've got an hour coming up, and so I would like to pray for you, so what can I pray for? And so um, I was just reading all of the comments, and I, I just picked out five of them because a lot of them kind of fit within the, these five categories, but there were just hundreds and hundreds of people that, that said, hey, would you pray, pray for this? Um, here's a couple. I'm really depressed right now, especially during the Christmas season. I'm in a really bad, toxic relationship, and I need some guidance. My wife has an inoperable brain tumor. They're giving her three months to live. My son is in the intensive care unit, and the doctors can't figure out what's wrong. I lost my job, and there's no prospects on the horizon. Did any of those resonate with you? You know, there are people all over the world who are facing incredible amounts of adversity, and I'm a part of a, a group that meets on Monday nights, and we, we spend a lot of our time in our group just praying for the people in that group and people that we kind of know and, and things of the world, and it's just amazing sometimes when we have this board of, of requests that people make, and people are just facing just incredible amounts of adversity. Just when I was reading some of those, man, my heart was breaking, because those are real people attached to those obstacles and those problems, and and what do you do when that, that's happening to you, when there's nothing that you can really do except just wait around? So how would you fill in that blank? Uh, my biggest problem right now is blank. What are you waiting around for, waiting for God to do, for him to show up? Uh, so maybe something's just not working out for you right now. Maybe it's your, your hopes and your dreams aren't coming true. And if you're honest with yourself, there's no hope of them ever coming true. You're at a dead end. And you might be just tempted to give up. I hear this a lot. You know, I'm just, oh, I'm at my, my wit's end. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm just, I want to give up. But if you think about that, that's like not really a good option. And you know that too. It's like you feel like giving up, but how do you give up? Other than you know, faking your death and getting a, you know, a passport and, you know, a different identity and moving to a different country and leaving all your loved ones and friends and family behind, that's, you can't just say give up. There's nothing you can really do with that. Or maybe you're just tempted to, and this is what a lot of us do, is just to mask the pain. And there's all sorts of ways that we can mask the pain. Um, not to pick on one, but so many of us turn to excessive alcohol and, and drug use just to mask the pain. And we know, we know it's not going to change things. We know it causes more problems, but there's something in us that is just, the situation is so just horrible and intolerable that, that we'll do anything just for a little bit of relief, even if it's just for a temporary fix, just to ease the tension. And to make matters worse, it seems like everyone else's life is working better than yours. Like, everyone else has it figured out. Now, I love social media. I really have a blast on it. But this is one of the things that I can't stand about it. And it's not social media's fault. It's just kind of what I kind of read into that, is that, you know, you're seeing other people taking more exotic vacations. They're living in bigger houses. They're driving nicer cars. Like, everything... They're, eating in better restaurants, everything just seems to be working out for them. And so I'm kind of old school because the way that you used to find out about this was just among your friends, they would send you this thing called a Christmas card. 
Remember this way back then? Like, you know, you, like once a year, you would get like a Christmas card, and the people that were really like toppers, right, they would write a one-page uh, typed, you know, on stationery with little holly on it and stuff like that, and pictures of their perfect little family, and all the things that they did during the year that made their life so great, and all that kind of stuff. And that was it. But then you were not really thinking about your family or your friends you know, that much. You just had to wait till the next year. But now it's 24-7, 365 days a week where I can peek in on anybody all of my friends, all the people that I kind of have on the periphery and celebrities, you know, and when I do too much of that, it can really just make me feel like, how come I'm the only one whose life is not working out perfectly? Because <laughs> it seems like everyone else is. And I'm sure that you know that's not reality, but sometimes it's just it's, our brain doesn't really compute that this isn't reality. So you begin to think, okay, what's wrong with me? And it usually manifests in these statements. I'll never be happy again. Nothing good can come from this. There's no point in continuing. Maybe you've said this to people out loud. Maybe you say it to yourself out loud, but probably you've been saying this to yourself, um, not out loud, because we all have these thoughts. And, and what do you do when you have these thoughts? And when things aren't going our way, which they inevitably aren't all the time, I think there's something in us that, that blames God. The same kind of reaction sometimes when you're waiting on somebody, that someone keeps you waiting, uh, it can just fuel you and make you angry. Like, and sometimes we, we know we shouldn't be angry with God, but if he's not doing what we think he should be doing on, on our timetable, we, we sometimes get angry and bitter towards him, and we begin to question his, his presence and his goodness and his acceptance of this. Um, we're going to kind of dive into that passage that Teal read in a little bit, but I'm going to kind of preview this a little bit. I just want to give you three truths about God. Uh, when he feels distant, when he feels that um, he's not answering your prayers, when you're in that waiting period in your life. And the first is that God is not absent. That God is not absent. The second thing is that God is not angry. That might be the best news you've ever heard in church, by the way. That God is not angry with you. I personally don't have a problem with these first two. Um, I, I've, I've lived enough Christian life where I don't think that God is, is absent, and I don't really think he's, he's angry with me. Uh, but this third one, ugh, this is me a lot, is that God is not apathetic. A lot of times I just think, you know, yeah, he's got more important things to do than to listen to my piddly little problems. And I think that he just doesn't care sometimes, that he's not really listening. Uh, but maybe one of those three words resonate with you, and maybe that's what you need to hear today, that God is not those three things. And there is no correlation. Hear this very carefully, okay? There is no correlation between the circumstances in your life, whether they are positive or negative or a mixture of both, and God's love and presence and grace in your life. There is no correlation whatsoever. And when God doesn't come through for us in the way that we think he should, we can become those three things. We can become absent. Now, we can become angry, and we can become apathetic in our Christian walk. And that's what I'd like to point to us this morning, um, that we can be the opposite of those three things. When things aren't working out in our life, when no, no matter what the circumstance is, that we can be the opposite of being absent. And what is that? That's being present, right? That's being fully available to, to reach out and love towards people that we need to reach out towards. It's uh, the opposite of being angry, where we're being fully loving and engaged in the people that God's called us to love. 
And being the opposite of apathetic, I mean, that's being fully alive and living an abundant life that God has called us to. So, what, so that's the question. What do, you, what do you do? What do you do when there's kind of nothing you can do? When things aren't changing, when your hopes and dreams aren't coming true, when God just seems to be uh, silent and you're in that waiting period. Um, before we get into that, I kind of want to say that this is going to be 501 level kind of Christianity here. This is not for, for the timid, okay? This is not basic Christianity. This is, this is graduate level kind of stuff. When you're waiting on God, and it's so much better and deeper than the lame sort of think positive thoughts or, you know, or, or just be happy or that kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with that. I should say it has very little to do with that. It has everything about to do with trusting God and it goes so much deeper than that. So to break down the passage that Teal read to us earlier, um, I want to give you a little bit of background on Paul who wrote um, that passage. And Paul, if you don't know, was an apostle of Jesus. He was not a disciple of Jesus. So when Jesus was here on this earth, uh, he wasn't one of the 12 hanging out with him. And about two years or so after Jesus had been crucified, Paul had this encounter, this miraculous encounter with the risen Christ. And if you hate Christians, if you can't stand them and you think that they should be arrested and locked up and the world would be a better place, uh, you're going to love Paul because Paul actually did this. Uh, Paul spent those two years post-Christ's death uh, arresting Christians and imprisoning them, taking them away from their families and friends, torturing them, and um, ultimately putting them to death. So this is the guy who wrote this, all right? So this was Paul's life, and he has this encounter with Jesus, um, this amazing aha moment of faith. And by the way, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but side note, after he becomes a follower of Christ, 18 years goes by, and we don't really hear much of anything that he did. Silence. You know, so what was going on in those 18 years? I mean, I can only theorize, uh, but there was a big waiting period <laughs> in Paul's life. But even after these 18 years... Some time after that, he is afflicted with a disease. Now, it might not have been a disease, but he's afflicted with something that's so horrible and so terrible and so debilitating that uh, that's where the, the basis of this passage is, is written. And people have theorized what it could have been. Um, it might have been some vision problems, so he had some problems reading. It might have been epilepsy, which back then that was kind of equated with demon possession. Uh, so you can imagine it could have been something very um, embarrassing for Paul because all Paul wanted to do was, was share the love of Christ. And so if you're having a, a seizure when you're trying to communicate to people, you know, like, yeah, it doesn't really work for you, Paul, does it now? Um, it could have just been clinical depression. And if you read through Paul's life, I mean, if, if I had to go through about a tenth of what Paul had to go through, I would have been severely depressed. So who knows what it was? And he doesn't really spell that out, what it is. But whatever it was, it prohibited him from being effective as he wanted to be in reaching other people with the gospel of Christ. And, and that's where we pick up in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 7 to 10. Are we there yet? Yes. Um, Therefore, in order to, that phrase in order to is uh, a purpose statement. That could be kind of translated a purpose statement, that God had a purpose. His purpose for Paul was in this Thing. So in order to, and Paul tells us what that purpose was right off the bat, to keep me from being conceited. So he knows that there was a purpose in his pain to keep him from being conceited. He goes on to say, I was given. That word given is a fascinating word. That word given, it actually could be translated a present or a gift. 
um, he didn't look at this as a curse. Um, it took him a while to realize that, but he, didn't, he began to see that this, this thorn in his side was a, um, not a curse, but, but a blessing, a gift from God. And you think about, we don't really think of our, our obstacles, our problems, our adversities as gifts too often, do we now? And he began to see that as a gift from the hand of his, of his loving father. It kind of makes me think of those, those Jimmy Kimmel um, videos. You ever see that where I gave my kid a terrible Christmas present? You know, so like the parents will wrap up a potato and give it to the kid, and the kid's all excited, and he opens it, and it's a terrible Christmas present. I mean, can you imagine, just, you know, kind of theorize with me, that you, you know, Christmas, and you open up a package under the tree, and you're all excited, and what is it? Yes, it's a debilitating disease. Or you open up a gift, and it's not the, the G.I. Joe with a kung fu grip. It's unemployment. Yes. Financial hardship. <sighs> you know, a terrible Christmas gift, right? So Paul began to see this as a gift. He goes on to say, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. This is where a thorn in my side comes from. You ever heard that phrase? Oh, it's a thorn in my side. You know, my boss. Oh, thorn in my side. Or my mother-in-law. She's such a thorn in my flesh. My spouse is such a stop there. So this is where that comes from, that phrase, you know, the thorn in my side, and a messenger of Satan. I have no idea what that means, and I kind of looked it up and I really kind of found no agreement. We don't know if this was Satan himself, if it was a demon, if God kind of used Satan and his demons to, to do this work. It's really unclear, and scripture doesn't spell that out. But what we do know, it was there to torment him. And you know, you can probably relate to that. Have you ever been tormented with something? Your problem, your issue, your obstacle, your adversity, that it torments you. It's all you can think about. You don't mean it to, but it's, it consumes you. It's your number one priority, and it, it, it's painful. Maybe that's physical pain, emotional, spiritual, maybe a combination of all three, but it's, it's terrible, and it torments you, and it's all you can think about. Uh, and so this is what Paul did, and this is what we all do is we, we reach out to God. When nothing else works, we, we reach out to God. And so Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, this is not three times, like three little prayers, like one day he prayed at breakfast and lunch and dinner, and like, oh, that didn't work. No, this is talking about three long seasons of desperate groaning and pleading with God to take this, this thorn in his side away. And it was something that was so horrible, so debilitating, probably embarrassing. And I just want to do a quick side note, by the way. Um, if someone's ever told you that things aren't working out in your life because you don't have enough faith or you're not trusting God, that, that's wrong. And most of, not all, but I would say most of the TV preachers, that's kind of their, their claim to fame, is that God wants you happy he wants you wealthy, he doesn't want you sick, he wants you healthy all the time, and if you're not trusting in him enough, and if you just believe more, then that stuff will happen. And the thing that I want to say to all those TV preachers, or whoever else has said that to you, I would say this to them, is that Paul was a better Christian than you will ever be, and he had more faith in Christ than you will ever have. And God's goodness and his grace and his mercy has nothing to do with circumstance, absolutely nothing to do with that or how much God loved Paul and how much he loves you and me. So Paul writes this. He says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect 
in weakness. Can I translate that, say, that, that little phrase? My grace is sufficient for you. God told Paul, no. Big, fat no. So not only is Paul's thorn in his side, is it embarrassing and horrible and debilitating. It's now permanent. Thanks, God. It's a permanent issue. So Paul said no to him. And Paul goes on to write, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So look at those words right there, that he will boast about his circumstances that are not so great. Uh, that there's some gladness involved in it. That he will delight in it. What? What are you talking about? That makes no sense. Doesn't that sound so un-American? I mean, that's like not the American dream, is it? You know, that people aren't going to go and, and brag about that on social media, right? No one's going to do that. In, in a sense, it kind of feels unchristian, right? Especially if you've heard that you don't have enough faith and that's why your life is not going so hot. Um, this is that 501 level kind of thing. When you begin to see your adversity as a gift from your father. And I'm not going to tell you this is something that you should, should do. Because I think every person, every Christ follower has to come to this realization, this epiphany, if you will, to begin to see this. I, I believe this is a spiritual activity. As we rely on the Holy Spirit to live in and through us, this is where we begin to see our our problems, our obstacles, the thing that's not going well in our life as a gift from God. And so that's your simple homework assignment. Your homework is, will you, will you begin to consider your adversity as a gift from your loving hand of your Father? I'm just asking you, would you begin to consider that? Would you begin to look at whatever you do to fill in that blank of what your problem, your adversity, your obstacle is? Will you begin to consider seeing that as a gift from God? And a way that you can do that is maybe just a, just a prayer. And here's just a sample prayer. Uh, God, thank you so much for you fill in the blank with what you're going through. God, thank you so much for that. You know, please help me to, to cling to you through this, to cling to your promises, to, to help me understand the purpose of, of why I'm going through this and to accept your will for my life. Uh, I'm going to give you a hard pill to swallow because someone told me this once and it has continued to be a hard pill for me to swallow, and it's a phrase that I repeat to myself over and over. And the phrase is this. Well, it's actually a question, so I'll ask you this question. Do you want your prayers answered, or do you want God's will for your life? You know, if my, my Sunday school, you know, pastor answer come up, comes out like, well, I want God's will for my life. Of course I do, right? And if I'm really honest, I'm like, no, nah, I don't really care so much about that. I want my prayers answered. I want God to do stuff in my life, right? I want him to act, and I don't think of him like a genie, but sometimes I do, right? I just want him to do what I think he should be doing. And that's, that's a gut punch for me to say, do I want God's will for my life or do I just want my prayers answered? And hopefully as I grow in Christ and begin to trust him more, more with my life, as I place more of my faith in him, that that answer will become more and more, I want God's will for my life, no matter what the circumstance. And whatever circumstance I'm going through right now, whether that's positive or negative, I'm going to learn to, to have faith in him and to trust him in every moment with that. I want to leave you just with two things, and I think this will be a real encouragement to you. 
Um, and we kind of glean this from the passage that Paul writes. And so your pain has a promise. Okay, your, your pain that you're going through has a promise attached to it. And the promise is this, is that God's grace and power are enough for you. When God said, my grace is sufficient for you, that means that God's grace and his love will, that, that's enough. If you have nothing else but Jesus, that, that's enough. And so that's a promise you can take with you, is that God will be with you through it. He might not take it away. And I would like to say that he does more often than not. It seems that he often, I mean, he does, he does miracles. He heals, he restores, and I can tell you just story after story from my own life and other people's life, and there's nothing wrong with asking him for that, nothing wrong at all. But most of the time, it seems to me that he chooses not to. And it's usually to just make us hold on to that promise, uh, that promise that he will be with us, that he will, um, that his grace and his power are enough for us. So not only does your pain have a purpose, your pain has a, prom- or a purpose attached to it. Not only a promise, but a purpose attached to it. And so for Paul, again, it was to keep him from being conceited. Okay, I'm going to tell you what your purpose is attached to your pain. Are you ready for this? Flash it up there, Mikey. What's your purpose? It's the next slide. That's it. I have no idea. I have no idea the purpose attached to your pain, what, what purpose it's, it's supposed to serve. I can maybe guess at it, um, but I have no idea. You're going to have to figure that out. You're going to have to ask God to, to show that to you. Um, maybe it's developing gratefulness in your life and more of a thanksgiving um, heart that you have. Maybe it's... Um, an anticipation of a next season that's going to be better than the one right now. But if you get it too quickly, you might not appreciate it, might not be as grateful for it. So it's to build that anticipation and thankfulness. Uh, maybe it's develop your, your intimacy with God and your dependence upon God. I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. But I believe that as you begin to see your adversity as a gift from the Father, that he will make that known to you. And if you pray, God, show me what the purpose is, he will let you in on that. And if he doesn't, that's okay too, because you might know what that is someday if you give it enough time. It might not be in this life. You might have to wait till the next life to, to figure that out. No promises there. But you know that there is a purpose. There is a promise attached to your pain. And God is just as concerned with your journey of faith than he is your destination. A lot of times we just think, you know, our de- destination is the most important thing. God is concerned about your journey, your day-by-day, your minute-by-minute, your second-by-second trusting of him for your life. He's much more concerned about your journey or just as concerned about your journey as he is your destination. So will you begin to see your pain uh, attached with a promise, attached with a purpose? And if you do, it will keep you from being more absent, being more angry, and being more apathetic in your life. Well, every week at Velocity, we, we take communion, and communion is just a, a picture of Christ's sacrifice uh, on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Before Jesus went to a cross, he prayed a very similar prayer that Paul prayed. He prayed to his, his father, his loving father who sent him to this planet. He prayed, God, will you take this cup from me? Will you let this cup pass from me? In other words, is there another way that I can accomplish my mission in life without having to go to the cross, where I have to become sin, where I have to take on the sins of human history on myself 
Is there any way? But he doesn't even stop there, and there's a comma right after that. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And there's a promise attached to Jesus' pain. The promise is probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. It's John 3.16, that for, that for God so loved the world, for God so loved us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise associated with Jesus' pain that he was about to endure. And there was a purpose attached to Jesus' death as well, that forgiveness and life would be available to every human being who's ever walked on planet Earth. And so God, he said no to Jesus. And aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad that he said no to Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, I just want to thank you so much for for sending Jesus uh, to this planet. Thank you so much for uh, saying no to him in his most desperate hour uh, so we could have the the gift of forgiveness, uh, the gift of life that's available to all of us who place our trust in you. Uh, So God, thank you so much for that gift. And for all of us who are uh, experiencing Uh, hardships and pain, uh, trials that are just so unbearable, God, I'm I'm asking you that you would help us in this waiting period, that you would begin to to show us your your purpose, your your plan for us, uh, and that you would walk us through uh, whatever situation we're going through. Help us to trust you and place our faith in you and to, to believe in the words that you said, that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. God, thank you for your gifts and Continue to teach us and help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.